Dr. Harrison Sai, or Hamish to the British paragliding community, is a hospital consultant who has a passion for mountaineering and skiing, which led him to take up paragliding in 2004. He flies as often as work and weather permits. He has recorded six 100-plus K flights in the UKXC League and is a previous winner of the highest-placed ENB pilot. He lives in Beverly, which is close to the East Yorkshire coast and which boasts some of the finest coastal flying sites in northern England. Although a passionate XC pilot, he has extensive experience of coastal flying, and for this podcast I picked his brains on many aspects of flying by the sea, including weather, hazards, coast lexies, sea breezes, convergence, sea thermals and more. If you've not already done so, you might find the podcasts on other flying environments interesting. You can listen to the Alpine and Flatland Flying podcasts at www.judithmole.net slash blog and navigate to the podcast page. So can I start off by asking you what you love about coastal flying? Well, I don't necessarily love coastal flying. I'm an XC <laughs> pilot. I prefer to be out at cloud base doing big XC flights. But mm-hmm. I live by the coast. And it's a shame not to maximize on the use of the coast because the coast can be essence of flying, what's flying about, uh, just being in the air, just chilling out, playing with a wing. These are the things you can do in the coast that you will not necessarily be able to do on a big XC flight. So it's a different type of flying. It has its joys, its own enjoyment, and uh, there are lots of nice things about it. Uh, for a start, it's often very stress-free. Uh, secondly... The coast is very pretty. The UK coastline is actually extremely pretty. Parts of the uh, East Yorkshire coast is extremely beautiful. Huge cliffs, beautiful places to to fly that no one else gets the privilege to fly apart from seagulls. It's a shame not to use all these lovely flying places. Wales is another place where great coastal sites. And the south of England as well has got great coastal sites. Not to mention... Quite a lot of um, both the east coast and the west coast of Scotland has great flying sites. These are beautiful places to fly, and a shame if the conditions are right. Why not? Why not fly it? It's fantastic. I remember going up to Rayton Sands, very close to where you live, exactly. and having a spectacular flight in amongst a, a flock of seagulls, and it was just stunning. Exactly. And uh, there's a kind of privilege that very few people, uh, you know, places that you very few people actually see because apart from seagulls, what other creatures fly in those areas, you see? So it's fantastic. Especially, I love Reed and Sands. Reed and Sands is one of my favorite areas to fly to. And as, is, as I said, it's just 20 minutes from where I live. So if the conditions are right, you'll find me out there. You know, you like cross-country flying, but actually there's some very long out-and-returns and, and coastal exes that you can do. And people have this perception that flying distance on the coast is easy, but that's far from true, isn't it? That's exactly right. I mean, there are parts of the UK where you have these long ridges where you can fly. South of England is one. And here in East Yorkshire coast, where in my local just 10 miles down from where I live is a place called Mappleton and there is certainly a cliff run that takes you from Hornsey all the way to Tunstall which is a 37 to 38k out in return now unfortunately it's not always 
easy, as you quite rightly remarked. The cliffs can be very low at points. At points, it's just about you know eight meters high. Uh, that's just about <laughs> just beyond the height of your uh, your wing, really. Uh, and, and so it's very parts are very low. So you need the exactly the right conditions. Also, you find areas where the angle it faces the wind is maybe different, so you, you may have little dips in it, and you have to cross little gaps in it. So there are places where it can be quite tricky. The one I described, the uh, Mapleton run, is more typical, which is just a straight cliff run. Not very high, but it's a cliff run. And in the right conditions, it can be quite easy. I can do two or three of in a day. But there are places where it, the runs are more difficult, one I, I've done is the, is the mask to Staines route, which is up in, in North Yorkshire, Middlesbrough area. And that involves huge cliffs as well as big bays where it's quite tricky to cross. Also, you may have to use, sometimes use thermals coming off and get high and then before you can make some of these crossings. So there are, it's more involved. It's not just not just um, soaring a cliff. There are little inlets that can be quite tricky, and there may be rotted areas. And also, winds can change, and you know, tides can come in, etc. So there are issues when you're doing these long cliff runs that you've got to be aware of. You've got to find yourself a good window, good forecast, tides must be right, and also you must get your wits about you, watch what the conditions are like, it will be changeable, etc., etc. So there are lots more to it than just putting a wing up and bimbling up and down. Does your preparation for going out flying at the coast, is that different to your preparation for going out on inland? I mean, in terms of the, the weather forecast that you look at or the stuff that you'll take or just, just how do you... If, you're, if you've got two days, one inland, one at the coast... Obviously, the weather is the most important thing. Uh, usually, we go to the coast because in the summer months anyway, during XC season, I'll go to the coast only when inland flying is not possible, too windy usually is, it, is the reason. Uh, as I said, the coast, you can t- it takes a little bit more wind, so you can actually fly when uh, conditions are blown out inland. So uh, you look at the meteorological conditions and you find that, yep, it's a day for coastal soaring, not a day for inland exit flying, then you go to the coast. You might also want to go to the coast simply because, well, I've only got half a day and it's a two-hour two drive to Peak District, so I might as well just hop over to my local site and play about uh, for a couple of hours. So there might be a reason for that. Anyway, by looking at the forecast, obviously it's the first thing. Obviously, the wind must be correct. Now, the coast will accept more a narrower band of winds that are flyable in the sense that it must be strong enough to give you lift, but not too strong that you can't take off. And so you look at the forecast with that in mind. Also, you've got to understand that the wind direction has to be perfect for whatever site you're going for. Fortunately, where I live, we have a coastal site for practically any easterly direction wind of wind. So, so long as a bit of east in it, that's fine. Uh, the other thing is uh, to to watch out for is, especially in the summer months, is that what 
your forecast says the wind direction is going to be may not be the wind direction that will happen on your particular site. And let, let me explain why. In the summer months, sea breezes will change or will, will alter the wind direction quite considerably. So it might tend to um, uh, veer the wind uh, in certain circumstances or back the wind uh, in certain circumstances. So you, local knowledge, again, will give you an idea of what the wind direction is. Fortunately, nowadays, we've got lots of well, wind stations around the coast and you can use them because for me, it might be just 15 minutes drive to get to the coastal site. All I need to do is click on the particular wind reading and check it. And if it looks perfect, then we're out. Uh, we, we, we know that it will be, will be good. Preparation, other than and meteorological preparation, obviously, what do I do in terms of um, equipment, etc.? Really, you don't need any equipment to fly in the coast, um, but I, I like having a varia. It's just comforting to have one. And uh, I find that uh, a GPS is very helpful also in knowing your ground speed, especially if you're on the higher cliffs, then you knowing your ground speed is terribly important. But obviously, things like mapping GPS, airspace warning devices, um, you know, they don't, are not necessary for coastal flying. Uh, you probably want to use old harness because it gets very mucky in the coast sometimes, uh, you might, uh, especially in winter months where it can get uh, mucky. So you might want to use an old harness rather than your brand new super duper thousand pound um, comp, comp harness. <laughs> that might be the only difference. <laughs> Okay, so what would you say are the main differences then between coastal and inland flying? There are several differences. First of all, the kind of conditions you fly in. You're talking about winds that come off usually from the sea. So there's no land masses in front of it. Uh, it's got no resistance. It's just pure wind, meteor winds coming from the sea. Sometimes you can fly on uh, sea breezes in the summer months when... As you know, sea breezes uh, um, caused by uh, warm land air, mass thermals, etc., rising air, and it's drawing all the cooler sea air coming in. In, in the UK, we're not a huge land mass, so our sea breezes are, tend to be quite unpredictable, uh, and it can come on you know, at midday or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, or not at all. So um, it can, sea breezes can be quite difficult to fly with. If you're flying meteor winds, however, then obviously uh, um, yeah, you, you look at a forecast and we're actually flying winds that tend not to fly in inland. So we tend to look at winds at 12 to 14 miles per hour as being typical rather than strong. In an inland flight, if you have average winds of 12 or 14, you think it would be quite strong, whereas in the coast that would be typical soaring winds. Also, your sights tend to be clips. So launching can be quite tricky because you're often launching in very rotated areas and uh, you need really good launching techniques. Cliffs obviously have sharp edges and winds can be very rotated at the edge of the cliffs. And that makes it very difficult to launch. Now, there are some little techniques you can use. But the first and the most important thing I tell people who come to the coast when they're launching from cliff sites is Speak to the locals. Locals who fly those sites regularly know where the best place to launch are, and they can give you tips as where to launch and how to launch. 
so always speak to the locals. Maybe there are other local rules about where you can and cannot launch from. So important to talk to them. Coastal sites are often places where tourists fre- frequent, so there are a lot of public members around. So you've got to understand it's not an isolated hillside. So there are lots of people, kids playing about, uh, milling about, uh, mothers in push chairs as well. So you don't want to launch straight into them. So there are local issues that you've got to, to familiarize with them. So speak to the local pilots. They will always be helpful. Secondly, if you're on your own, if you're not sure, always Look for areas where the cliff is more broken up. There will always be an area where the cliff is more broken. Perhaps there is more um, uh, clearing in front of the cliff, and therefore that's a probably a better place to uh, launch from. Sometimes there's a little ditch or a little erosion area where, where a bit of the cliff will become ang- uh, less at right angles and more of a slope, and that's also a nicer area to launch from. Thirdly, Look at the grass. Look at the grass that you're launching from or the ground you're launching from. The grass or put a, a indicator like a ribbon on the ground because uh, that will tell you where the least amount of road. In other words, there's a bit of wind and you need a bit of wind uh, to help launch. Sometimes the wind, uh, the road is such that the, you get a backwind on the ground itself. In any case, what you need to do is understand what the wind's doing. So your initial pull has to be quite strong because there often is little or no wind on the ground level where your wing is laid out. But as you reach about half height, you hit the strong winds. Uh, so at about 40, 45 degrees, uh, your wing suddenly hits a strong, stronger breeze and it'll suddenly try to pop and drag you up. So you've got to uh, be aware of that. That's where you initially pull quite strongly then release it as it catches the wind and walk towards it or even run towards it in some time until it catches the wind, until your wing is fully inflated and flying. Often by that time, uh, the wing is really quite strong and you have to weight yourself, in other words, sit on it initially. So you're facing a wing still on the reverse launch te- uh, method. You're sitting on a wing, putting your whole weight on the wing and, and uh, stabilizing it. Sometimes in strong conditions, uh, you might want to reverse into the, towards the cliff edge, just a few steps, just to get your wing uh, in a better position. Sometimes you want to turn around. At this point, you need to put all your weight forward and walk forward gradually, not running or jumping on your wing, but walk forward gradually towards the edge of the cliff until you get lifted off and start flying. Sometimes you hit a kind of wind curtain around a cliff edge and it's important when you do that is not to panic but keep a weight forward until it lifts you off the ground. If As it lifts you off the ground, don't forget, don't jump on your harness. Just keep your weight forward and push yourself forward until you're well off and cleared of the cliff and start flying. So that's the technique for launching in cliffs. There are unique meteorological things about coastal flying. The air is coming from the sea, so it has no landmass in front of them. It has, it, therefore, it's usually, if it changes, it can change quite quickly. The, the weather can quite suddenly start from very little or nil wind to blowing absolute hooli within, you know, half an hour, 15 minutes, even minutes. So you have to be, have your wits about you when you fly the coast. Now, you get clues as to what the wind's doing by looking at the state of the sea. Generally speaking, 
white caps will appear when force three to four winds. That means uh, winds are about 12 to 15 knots are blowing. So you start seeing white caps. That's probably kind of your limit. So if you see white caps developing out in the sea, you've got to be thinking, well, the winds are picking up. The other thing you could see also is the sea state. Sometimes you see ripples in the sea, areas of ripples, and that usually means turbulence, or, you know, differences, black ripples and flatter water elsewhere, and that usually means regional bits of turbulences. And that also suggests to you that the wind's going to be gusty, uh, and you've got to watch out for that. And then, obviously, the tides. Uh, you don't forget the tides. Now, um, you, you can always check tides before you go out. Easy, easy tides uh, is a UK site that's, that the UK hydrological you know, people uh, put out, which is very, very detailed. And it'll tell you not just when the low water is and high water is, but how high the high water is and how low the whole water is. You, paradoxically, you can have a um, situation where you've got high water and yet you've got plenty, still plenty of beach to land in. And it equally, you can have low water and hardly any beach to land in. So don't forget that the, the tides um, are not just high water and low water, but there are different heights in the tides as well. So um, obviously, you want lots of uh, safety. And the safest place to land usually is a good clear beach. And uh, usually ex you expect the winds to be less strong in the, uh, in the beach. If you find yourself in a difficult situation or the weather suddenly picks up, uh, we've got plenty of beach to land in, that's the best and safest place to land. The, the, the opposite is uh, that uh, you want to land on beach, not water. And uh, water landings are... Uh, as they're said to be invariably fatal, so um, best avoid water at all costs. But not only that, but if you can land on the beach, you might find your wings start falling into water, and that can be a very dangerous situation as well. Because your, once your wing fills with water, it becomes not six kilogram wing but probably a 600 kilogram to pull. So you're not going to be able to pull your wing out. So make sure your, your, keep your, your wing doesn't land into the sea. And if it does, get out of your harness is the first thing you do. And then try to rescue your wing um, with the aid of friends, perhaps, uh, because uh, you do not want to be trying dragging your wing while you're still strapped in. You might drown. When the winds pick up and you don't have beaches to land in or if the beach is full of people or you don't even have penetration enough to get to the beach so you're you're kind of uh, high and kind of pushed back and uh, you can't you don't have penetration forward the winds start picking up what do you do well the last thing you want to do is to land in area of rotor because uh, mechanical rotor is vicious and your wing can be in all kinds of configuration as it tries to land and you might get into a lot of trouble. So if you're reasonably high, I think the best thing to do, and you see an area, grassy area perhaps, a safe area to land further inland, is to make a dash for it inland and then and land inland, as far back inland as you can safely do. You don't really want to be in that situation, but if you're in, if you're in a situation where the wind picks up and you have no choice, that's what you have to do, and that's probably the safest thing to do.
And one other thing, when you fly in big places like Wheaton that you talked about, where you don't really have any bottom landing because often the sea is lapping on the cliffs below. So it's all right when you have plenty of height, when you plenty of, and the conditions are superb and often is. You get often get nice conditions there, you're high, you're happy and you're playing around. But beware if the winds switch off because then you're into a situation where you don't you don't want to be low. So always keep a safety margin. Make sure you're at least good few meters above the edge of the cliff. So when the when the conditions fall off, you can top land. So that's a safety proviso that you should consider as well. But every site is different, and every site has got their own particular hazards. So once again, I said talk to the locals. They often will be able to tell you about uh, what the local safety hazards are. I was going to say, particularly with top landings, you really do need to talk to the locals, don't you? Yes. Generally speaking, in cliffs sites, when you're top landing, it's either best to land well forward before the vicious turbulence is, and you, that you, I'm talking about within you know, 10 metres of the edge, or well back where there's less likelihood of turbulence. Where the rotor area on the cliff site is very variable, it depends not only just on wind strength, wind direction, all kinds of uh, local effects can affect it. So that's important to be aware of. Obviously, to land on the cliff edge 10 meters from the cliff site on the edge uh, demands a lot of skills. Um, and you can hone quite a lot of your wing handling skills in the coast. And that's one of one joys of coastal flying as well is to learn to to use your wing top land on cliff sides play around with your wing uh, and, and ground handle and you know you can play about with a wing particularly if you're a new wing or whatever you're a trap trial your wing you know you can give it give it the beans and you um, generally speaking very benign conditions um, yeah, that's a you know a good place to play with a new wing or try out a new wing Sea thermals. Can you tell me a bit about them and what conditions that you need as a prerequisite for the sea thermals? The first thing to say is that you usually get sea thermals about this time of the year, uh, autumn, late autumn, early winter, uh, or even in, um, throughout the winter months, uh, you may get sea thermals. Basically what it is is that in, in, the, in the late autumn, winter, early winter months, the sea is relatively warm, and obviously now polar air masses start, start creeping in as in, in the UK. And obviously cold air, warm sea means there will be sea thermals. Now these thermals, generally speaking, are not like your land thermals. They're not usually very strong. Very rarely do you get sea thermals more than two meters per second lifts from them. Occasionally you might. On, on exceptional circumstances. Generally, they are also uh, released over a wider area. Imagine the sea is flat, not like hilly places or even land where there are trigger areas for thermals to release. The sea is flat and so it doesn't have, typically it doesn't have a little mound or a little trig point or whatever to release the thermals. So it can release in a gentler, wider area rather than vicious little cores. So what you normally get is a gentle two-up, and usually it's quite smooth. When do you get them? It's this time of the year, as I said. You've got to have a really cold air mass, uh, preferably a cold, dry air mass, like a, a, 
a polar air mass creeping down, and you might get that uh, happening. It's not easy for us paraglider pilots to connect with sea thermals for several reasons. One, we fly the coast. The bigger sea thermals tend to release out in the sea, uh, many miles out. What you get, however, is little remnants of sea thermals that drift into your coastal site, your cliff site, and start rising. And that you can get, again, at this time of the year, provided there are a few factors. Uh, so you've got a lot of factors have to come together. Firstly, the seawater obviously must be warm still. Secondly, your air mass must be cold. Thirdly, your land mass must be quite cold. So uh, usually it happens when there is a, stro- uh, you know, a good frost overnight, when the actual land is actually very cold. So you get this cold air in the land, and then you get warm air drifting of the sea, and starts triggering off. And finally, like all thermals, you must have a good lapse rate. And that occurs, obviously, depending on the... Uh, if, if, if there is a good dry cold air mass, you get a good lapse rate, and you can get the sea thermals releasing. It will release, obviously, and then you can thermal them. And I've had several great experiences, again in Reton, of climbing in sea thermals. I think a couple of years ago, I climbed all the way to cloud base uh, from a single thermal from the sea, and and that's superb. And again, it was in mid-November. It was perishing cold and cloud base. In fact, it snowed on me at cloud base that day. So it was good fun. So having said that, uh, the cloud base won't be very high in sea thermal, simply because it's moister air, and generally speaking, you'll be lucky to get two grand uh, cloud base, but it's better than nothing, I suppose. And then you can go on your adventures, you can try to uh, fly XC from there, but mm, best of luck, really. This time of the year, you're not going to have that many land thermals releasing. So you can have either, one or the other, but you rarely get both. There's a second variety uh, of um, coastal thermals, really, not so much sea thermals. Sometimes in high summer months, in a big rocky coast like um, the, the one at Saltburn, particularly, as one uh, a good example of that, you can get thermals releasing from the cliff edge. I know you're talking about sea air, that can't happen, etc. It can, it does happen. If the rocks are heated hot enough, it will release the thermal. That, again, depends on the actual conditions uh, that you, you experience, a particular uh, meteorological conditions, when that particular condition can occur. Another thing about sea thermals is that you don't really need the sun to have sea thermals releasing, which is opposed to land thermals, because all you need is a warm sea. But you cannot have too strong winds. If the winds are too strong, it will break up sea thermals very quickly. So you get just get disorganized kind of roughish air rather than a proper organized thermal. So you again you need perfect conditions for that. You need lightish winds, but winds strong enough to give you soaring conditions, warm um, sea and cold air mass, and then you can get sea thermals arising. Having said all that, it's relatively rare. Uh, you, you can fly a month of Sundays even in winter by the coast and not sniff out a single thermal but when it happens it's one of your it's your day enjoy it are there any issues with orographic cloud forming mm. in the autumn months where you get moist uh, sea air hitting the cooler land areas the cliffs high cliffs for example obviously orographic clouds uh, will form more often 
you get is the so-called advection fog, which is a sea fog hitting warm, moist sea air hitting cool uh, land. You you often can see it coming in, uh, particularly in bays where we fly, uh, like Bridlington Bay. You often get these um, fog fronts coming in in front of you, and you, you really can see them coming in. So, so you can uh, get prepared and land if you need to. Having said that, obviously you don't want to fly in when it starts forming. Obviously, you you should try land out and try not to get quite caught. But generally speaking using common sense, really. You can see the fog usually rolling in, so you can get away from it. Having said that, some, in some clips, the fog is very predictable because the wind is in a predictable fashion, and the fog can form very predictably over certain cliffs. And in the higher ones, you can actually fly in front of all the fog and cloud formation. So it's quite pleasant because if the sun is in the right position, you get to see your glory like a rainbow ring, your shadow on the cloud. It is pretty spectacular. I've only done it once, and when I saw it, I nearly, I was like squealing with joy. <laughs> you mentioned um, coastal exes. Mm. Well, let's start at the coast and go inland. And a lot of people have the perception that the two things are mutually exclusive, that mm. if you fly at the coast, you fly at the coast, and if you want to go cross-country, you go inland. Mm. But there are actually quite a few sites in Britain where... You can use the coast as a starting point. The one I'm thinking of at the moment is Fairborn, mm. near Barmouth, where you can actually start yes. off on the cliffs there and then jump onto Cader Idris and make it across to Bala and beyond. Yes. I've not flown there, so I, I only hazard an edu- educated guess. I think it's a mixture of land thermals, because that usually happens in the spring or summer months, and right conditions. Also, you get if you've got a lot of hillyish coast, then you get get areas where it's relatively protected from the sea air for a period anyway. Warms up enough for to release proper thermals, uh, and you can use the coast as a hopping off point, and then try to get laps on these thermals and and climb out, and then it becomes a relatively straightforward kind of land XC. The other group of uh, areas where you can get excellent XC from the coastal area is to catch on to the wonderful thing called coastal sea breeze convergences. You should be speaking to Mark Watts about it because he flies all the time and makes 20, 30, 100k XCs on these um, really, really quite predictable convergences down in the south. Uh, typically in, in the south, um, it w- it's light northerly winds associated with sea breeze coming from the south, and that creates a predictable uh, sea breeze convergence. Now, it's hard to get to the sea breeze convergence from a coastal site. It's usually easier to get onto the lateral sea breeze convergence from an inland site. Here in East Yorkshire, we've got a tiny little site. It's one of the places where I would launch uh, and try to catch the sea breeze convergence. And in high summers, the, the sea breeze convergence usually um, comes around 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You launch it about just, just before that, and then the sea, you, can, you can see the sea breeze convergence start forming. And there are little telltale signs. Typically, the curtain clouds, you get the moister sea air creating this little curtain clouds, and you've got your dark thermal clouds uh, forming uh, in a line with the, ther- with the curtain clouds beyond it and the sea on the seaward front. And typically, you want to latch onto that and 
flights to from there to sperm point are, are not unusual in the sea breeze convergence. Often it's easier to catch those sea breeze convergence from the inland site. Uh, it might just be 30 miles inland, but an inland site is easier to catch on the sea breeze convergence than from the coast. Now, uh, if you have a high-performance wing or if you're a hang glider, then it's not unusual to get onto the sea breeze convergence from the seaward front, front rather than from the landward front. It's more difficult with a paraglider. Uh, I'm sure somebody has done it, but I personally haven't. What about the issues of so- sand and salt in your paraglider? Mm, yes. Avoid landing in the, oh, areas where you might get salt the water into your glider. Um, I can't think it'd be any good for your glider. If you do get your glider soaked in salt water, the, uh, the advice is uh, take it home, put it in a bath of clean, you know, fresh water and soak it, wash it off, preferably soak it for uh, a bit, maybe uh, a couple of hours and then rinse it off and, and that's hopefully will help, but it will no doubt damage a wing. So avoid landing in the sea. That's often easier said than done, but avoid. Sand, however, um, you can't avoid usually because you land on the beach. My advice is if you do land, kill your wing gently so that your leading edge doesn't hit the ground, but your trailing edge hits the ground gently, and then posey it up as you walk towards the glider with the wind behind you, posing it up so your leading edge will be always kept away from the sand. Then as you take it up, shake it, and then walk all the way to a grassy area to pack up. Do not pack in the, uh, in the sand, because if you pack it up in the sand, you're bound to get sand in your wing. Most of the modern wings, however, have little buttonholes that they can open up, a Velcro thing that go and, and, and shake the sand off. Yeah, avoid sand if you can. Sand is very abrasive on your wing as well, so it's not good to have sand in, in your wing. Thanks to Hamish for these invaluable insights. If you want to listen to more paragliding podcasts, you can do so by looking at www.judithmole.net slash blog. If you enjoy our podcasts, webcasts and articles on the paraglider, please consider making a donation to support us with our costs for hosting and also to support us in making great new resources. We've got lots of ideas for new podcasts, webcasts and articles and we'd be happy to produce them, but we need your support. You can find the donate button on any of the podcast pages on the paraglider.com as well as on the main index page. Thank you.